Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. I invite you to take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Nahum. We're going to be reading from there in just a moment. While you're doing that, I uh, like to thank those of you who are visiting with us for, for being here. And I hope that the lesson this morning will help us to understand a little bit more about who it is that we serve, who God is. Uh, I, I'm really hoping as we study through this book that we see a little bit about the, the mind of God. I hope that we see how He has revealed Himself in righteousness despite a wicked and oppressive world and how that righteousness uh, really should strike fear into heart of those that are wicked and at the exact same time bring a great hope into those that trust in Him and trust in His vengeance. So the, the book of Nahum does a, a, a fantastic job bringing these, these pictures out to us. Uh, but before we can get into it, we need to know a little bit about what's going on. Because I'm afraid sometimes we read the first line in Nahum, the oracle or the burden to Nineveh, and it causes us to immediately lose sight of what this book is. Is about. So we need a little bit of backstory, we need a little bit of context before we can really get into it. Early in Judah's history, we have a, a, a picture of this Assyrian nation, and they are not the big bad that they seem like they are later on in their life. In fact, early on, they're an ally to the nation of Judah. They come and they actually rescue Judah around 730 B.C. to uh, when, when they were at war with Israel and with uh, Aram. Uh, Aram and Israel team up and they come in to, to attack them. And the Judah, Judean king at that time, Ahaz, he goes to Assyria and he says, we can't do this without your help. And he actually pays them a tribute. He sends money to the Assyrian king and says, please come and help defend us against this attack. And so now we, we, we fast forward a ways in, and see that what has happened is Assyria, they came and they helped them, but they also continued to grow in strength and might and they got bigger and bigger and they became a little bit less of an ally and a little bit more of an overlord. And they start trying to throw their weight around and at this point Ahaz is dead and his son Hezekiah has taken the throne and in 700 BC he says, I'm not going to stand for that. Largely in part due to the fact that the king of Assyria dies. Assyria has went from town to town and country to country, conquering them and telling them we are indefeatable, we are immortal, the Assyrian immortals, and then the king is killed in combat. And it reveals to, to many of the countries, hey, maybe we can stand up to these people. And Hezekiah, just like them, says, no, we are going to revolt against their power. They will not rule over us, and Judah will not be under their control. And, and, and so they, they stage this revolt, and Sennacherib, the new king of, of Assyria, says, I have to do something with this country. Now, one thing that we need to understand about Judah is, on a global scale, Judah is absolutely worthless. They are not a kingdom of great might. It's not like we're going to go in there and we're going to take all of their great weapons and all of their great strongholds. We're not going to go in there and take all their riches because primarily compared to a lot of other countries, they're not that rich. The only value that Judah had was their location. Judah lies close to the, uh, in, in an area between Egypt 
and an area between Philistia and, and the, the, the Phoenician border to the north. And so this is a good place to stage attacks on some of these other countries. But other than that, they don't really hold a lot of value. So Sennacherib does not come down on them because I need this land. He comes down on them because I need to make an example of you. I need to show the rest of the world, you don't treat Assyria this way. You don't stand up to us. And so Sennacherib brings all of his might down on them to show their dominance. They invade Judah and they lay siege to many of Judah's cities, beginning with Lachish. Lachish is not a small city. It's a city we probably aren't very familiar with, but Lachish is a great city of Judah. In fact, a lot of times it's, de- it's described similarly to Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem was a very hard city to attack. Lachish is a very hard city to attack as well. And yet, Sennacherib comes down with his guys and he, dis- he, he lays siege to it and he is successful and he overcomes it and he does such a good job at it and he writes it all down. And that gets taken back to Assyria, back to Nineveh, where it was lost for a time, but now has been found. And in fact, you can go and you can read in the, the British Museum. They have the history of the siege of Lachish recorded by, the, by Sennacherib's army. And the thing that's interesting about that is it was so successful. He was so good. You don't mess with the Assyrian army because they were so good that the... Medes and the Persians, and the Grecians, and the Romans, and pretty much any country that ever used siege warfare again used what they learned from Assyria. Assyria set the stage for how to do this. They were fantastic at fatally attacking other armies. And so Hezekiah knows, okay, maybe... Maybe I've got myself in a little bit of trouble. And he actually takes a lesson from his father's playbook and he writes a letter to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and says, hey, I sinned against you. I'm sorry. What's it going to cost for you to leave us alone? And he writes back and says, here's my price. And to pay that price, Hezekiah has to actually strip the temple of God of its silver and gold and send it to Sennacherib who he pays, he, he, he does that, he strips the temple, he pays it Snackerib, Snackerib accepts the payment, says, thank you, I'm still coming for you because I've got to make an example of you guys. And he winds up at the doors of Jerusalem. And this sets the stage for what we're going to see in Nahum. Because he gets there and he sends a delegation in. He sends a delegation to the, to the city walls and he has some questions for them. But the main one is, who are you guys relying on? For protection. We're not going to go all the way back to 2 Kings 1, but if you were to turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 18, 19, it describes this, this whole account. And in that account, he writes to him and says, are you, are you going to rely on Egypt? I've already destroyed them. Egypt is a broken reed. They're a crutch with all the pieces missing and it's about to collapse. You can't rely on Egypt. And don't give me this business about you're relying upon your God The same God that you robbed His temple to pay me? You think He's going to help you? And then Sennacherib makes this statement. He says, actually, it's your God that sent me. That's right. Your Yahweh has sent me to destroy you. So who are you relying on? Now, I want you to picture yourself now. As a Jew living in Judea at this time, 
And this is not a power. This is the power in the world. Assyria is conquering everything. And now they've come to Judah. And your king has stripped the temple of the Lord to try and pay them. And they said, that's not stopping us. And they're now at the the gates saying, we're coming in and your God has sent us. What hope remains? What's left for me? This seems like a hopeless situation. In fact, Hezekiah basically just just laments and weeps and he sends a message to Isaiah. The prophet saying, basically, what do we do? And Isaiah sends a message back to Hezekiah saying, don't listen to this guy. God is going to do something about him because he is blaspheming God's name. God's going to punish him. And this ultimately happens. But what that causes Hezekiah to do is something amazing. He takes that message from Isaiah that says, trust in God. God's in control. God's going to do something about this. And he starts praying. And now God goes to Isaiah and says, I want you to send another message to Hezekiah and tell him I heard his prayer. And because he prayed to me, I'm going to do something about this. The angel of the Lord strikes the army. The Assyrian history even records that. They record this mysterious plague that overnight swept through their forces and killed thousands and thousands of their forces. And so they leave Judah. And we read that and we say, wow, there is a huge victory that has just taken place. And there has been a huge victory that has just taken place. But I really want us to stop and think about that for a minute. They leave. Jerusalem stands. But at what cost? The country is destroyed. They didn't just take Lachish. They took a lot of cities. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. Equally as many have been taken captive. The city is, or the country is in shambles and the thought that we are ever going to get out of the shadow of Assyria is probably just about destroyed. Yes, we made it through this. And yes, it was God that saved us. But what's left? That brings us to the book of Nahum. And the reason we have to go through that is because sometimes we open up the book of Nahum, we read the first verse, and we're gonna, it's a very short book. We'll be able to read through the whole thing today. But we read that first verse, the oracle of Nineveh, and immediately our minds go, Nineveh, Jonah. This is Jonah part two. This is nothing like Jonah. In fact, there's no reason we should ever read Nahum and think this is a book written to the Ninevites. This is a book written to these Jews that have experienced what Assyria has done to them. They have experienced a wicked, oppressive world. And it's very likely that they're experiencing wickedness and oppressiveness in their own country. Because most likely, the book was written not during the time of Hezekiah, but during the time of his son, Manasseh, one of the wickedest kings that Judah ever has. And so this is a message to them. This is a message to Jerusalem, to to Judah, to the Jews there, that need to know not, do you remember when I told Nineveh, repent or die, repent or be destroyed? They need to know, do you remember when I said, I'm in control? Do you remember who... I am. And so this is a really short book, and it's a book of poems. We need to understand that. that This prophet uses a lot of poetry, not in the sense that we think about poems. We think about poems, and we think about words that rhyme. 
He uses poems that rhyme thoughts, that connect thoughts together to try and show these people who God is and how God views oppression, how God views violence, and how God views His people. So, all that that we just discussed, that happens around 700 B.C. All of that that we just talked about. 50-75 years later is the time of Nahum. This is a generation that has grown up knowing that Assyria rules. This is a generation that did not likely see everything. Some of them did, but a lot of them grew up outside of what God did to save them in the days of Hezekiah. This is a time that, like I said, is probably under the rule of Manasseh, the wicked king. And the bulk of Nahum's message is going to be chapters 2 and 3, which says, this is what I'm going to do to Nineveh. This is what I'm going to do to Assyria. But before he can get to that, he has to start with a very important foundational message. And it's kind of like if you've got some great message to tell somebody, and you know there's no way they're going to believe this. So I have to start with these qualifying statements that that kind of set the stage. Nahum is going, through the mouthpiece of God, he's going to do the same thing starting in chapter 1 and describing to them this this glory of God. So read with me here uh, chapter 1 and and try to focus and see how he's, the, the, the things that he uses to describe the Lord in these verses. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of Him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who take refuge in Him, but with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Whether you devise against the Lord, or whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble, completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold on the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Chapter 1 is this beautiful, glorious description of God. And he begins with talking about the vengeance and the wrath that God pours out upon His his enemies. It's a picture of victorious, fiery power. 
being delivered. And immediately, he follows that up with verse 3. And he quotes Exodus 34, verses 6-7. through This is a passage where God speaks to Moses and says, let me tell you about who I am. He describes himself. It's one of the only passages we have where God is literally telling someone who he is and describing himself in these ways. And these descriptions of God are vital. All of them are vital to knowing him. God is jealous and he is wrathful and he destroys his enemies. But he is also slow to anger. See, in Exodus, when he gives that description, what's so beautiful about it is he gives that description at a time when Israel is acting like his enemy. He gives that description of himself at a time when they have just created the golden calf to replace him. Because we don't know what's going on up there on that mountain, but that sure is terrifying. How about we make us a God that we can talk to and that we can worship? So they've made themselves like enemies. They've made this calf to replace him. Moses has went down and and seen it, and he's come back to God to plead that he would forgive them. He's come back saying, maybe I can make atonement for this for you. And he goes back up to God, and God responds to him by saying, I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am patient. I am overflowing with loving kindness. And truth, I am faithful and I am forgiving. But the guilty will be punished. God describes Himself in these ways at a time when what Israel deserved was to just be wiped off the map. After everything He had done, they deserved to just have the big reset set and we're going to have a new, a new people to follow God. At that time, God says, that's not who I am. And in Nahum, God reminds the people, this is who I am. And that's important because they needed to know two things. One, they needed to know that He is vengeful, that He is jealous, and and that He pours out His wrath on His enemies. Because at this time in their history, His enemies were killing them. And so they needed to know that. I am not unaware of what's going on. And my enemies... They, they don't just get a free pass to do whatever they want to do forever. I see them, and I will do something about that. But they also needed to know, guys, you are my enemies too. Under Manasseh, they've brought back all of the wicked things that the wicked kings before had done. They've brought back the idols. They've brought back this oppression of the poor. They have completely turned away from God. And so at the same time of knowing God sees God sees the enemies. God is going to do something about that. God will avenge His people. They need to know we're behaving like enemies again. And the guilty will not go unpunished. And that's why the verse, verse 3, verse 7 are so important. God is slow to anger. The same patience that He has had with, with Assyria, seeking their repentance, is going to be provided to Judah as well. But in the end... The guilty have an appointment with the judge and they will not go unpunished. He repeats a message during this time 
from Isaiah. He uses a lot of language. A lot of language is recycled from Isaiah, which came a uh, hundred or so years before this. He uses the same language in verse 14 when he says, I will make an end of your name. Isaiah 14 makes that same charge against a different power, though. He uses that talking about what God is going to do to Babylon. And so what's happening? Why is God choosing to use Isaiah nearly 100 years earlier to talk about Babylon, and now He's going to turn around and use the exact same words to describe Assyria at a different time? What's He trying to prove? What's the point of chapter 1? That the readers in that day and readers today still need to understand. The point is, we serve an awesome God. We serve a God whose power and might and love knows no end. And because of that, there's no place and there's no time in which we can ever be separated from His justice. The purpose of chapter 1, the message, is all about the justice of God. It is a relief for the oppressed and is a mighty terror for the wicked. And it is ever-present and it is ever Powerful. And so having proven that, having shown that to the people again, reminding them, do you remember who God is? Then he gets straight into chapters 2 and 3. He says, the one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress. Watch the road. Strengthen your back. Summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches, the shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march and the cypress spears are brandished, the chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall, and the mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away, and her handmaidens are moaning like the sounds of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure." Wealth from every kind of desirable object, she is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting, knees knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces are grown pale. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, lioness, and lion's club, cub prowled? with nothing to disturb them. The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in a smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot. 
the charming one, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face. Show the nations your nakedness, the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Noaman, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with waters surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubin among, were among her helpers, and yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are opened wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traders more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountain and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? After we read chapter 1, we realize who God is. And we're reminded of, 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 his, of His wrath and of His anger against those that have wickedly oppressed His people. We feel, we feel the might of chapters 2 and 3 fully poured out on this nation. He's talking about what he's going to do to Nineveh. He's talking about what's going to happen to the whole of the Assyrian nation. And he takes four verses, really. Four verses. Verses 3 through 6 in chapter 2. Four verses say, Nineveh's done. It's going to be over. And he uses a poem to describe this. <clears throat> As he sums this up, he says, I, I want you to close your eyes and see the army amassing around the city. I want you to see the chariots racing towards her, the walls that are being breached and the city that is destroyed. And once destroyed, and it was, destroyed in the exact fashion that God has described, it's buried. And it's not found for thousands of years. Nineveh was found in the 1800s for the first time it was uncovered. It makes the words that he says in chapter 3, verse 11, he tells them, you, will you too will become drunk. You will be hidden. When we read that, we, we, we really shouldn't read that and think they will become intoxicated. It's like when you drink a glass of water and it's gone. He says, you all are, I, I'm going I'm to wipe you off the map. 
is what he's telling them. You're going to be gone. The city was destroyed. It was never rebuilt. It was literally consumed and hidden by the judgment of God. And throughout this, he tells them, here are the things that have, that have established your might. Their, your, your wealth, your security, your violence. All of this is what has made you who you are today. Their, their security was heavily relied upon the Tigris River. Nineveh is a city built right on the borders, on the banks of the Tigris. And he tells them, do you think that really, that's really going to be your security? In fact, all the things that have made you what you are are going to be the very things that destroy you. He tells them there's not enough might in the world that's going to be able to spare you. In fact, he invites them at the latter part of chapter 3 to, to prepare for the siege. Go ahead, bring in the water for the long haul. Fortify your defenses. Train up your men. Where did they go? He describes them like grasshoppers that just disappear and nobody can find them again. While you're trying to, to, to fortify your defenses, you'll be destroyed. He said, go ahead. Rely upon your might. Rely upon your wealth. See if you can buy your way out of this. In fact, he, going back to the Tigris, he says, are you no better than no Ammon? No Ammon was a, a city that is in Egypt that is also referred to as Thebes. The city of Thebes. It is a, a capital city of the nation of Egypt. And he says, are you any better than Thebes? Now, Thebes is situated on a river. It's situated on the Nile. Quite an impressive river. In fact, Thebes is built on both sides of the Nile. The Nile runs through the middle of it and it provides, it has all of these huge gates and this elaborate uh, architecture that have been done that made it this really impressive city. And on both sides of Egypt, to the north, you have the Mediterranean Sea. To the west, you have the Red Sea. This is a, a country that's supposed to be pretty much impenetrable. If you want to come to us, you either have to somehow get down below us and come up from the south or the east. And we'll be prepared for that because we don't have to watch the north or the west. We're protected on those borders. He says, are you no better than them? Why does he bring them up? Because they destroyed them. They are the ones that went into Thebes and wiped them out. They're the ones that murdered the children in Thebes. They're the ones that, that did so many violent acts here that he's bringing up. He says, are you somehow better than these guys that relied upon their security? He didn't want security for them. How is it going to be security for you too? The conclusion of this book is twofold. Number one, it's nothing. Nothing stands against God. Nothing can stand as an enemy of God and come out victorious. No matter how mighty you've made yourself, no matter what you've placed as your security, in the end, God is going to be victorious. But number two, nobody's going to mourn either. There's not going to be anybody sorry for what happens in Assyria. He says, in fact, they're going to clap. They're going to applaud what has been done to you. Why? Because their evil, their wickedness, their oppression had touched everyone. They were arrogant. They were proud. And they were receiving the judgment that the world knew they deserved. And not only knew they deserved, the, the, the world was happy 
that they received. But through all of this, we do need to keep in the back of our minds that this is not what God wanted. God does not delight in this. This is not Jonah part two, but these are the same people that He sent Jonah to when Jonah said, no, I don't want to go to them. God was trying to keep this from happening. So much so that He's taken this rebellious little prophet, swallowing him up in the belly of a fish, doing everything He can to bring him here to tell these people, stop and turn. Turn away from this evil. Turn back and follow God. That's not what happens. And what we see then is God is grieved. He's grieved by the wickedness of men. And God will not allow, He will not allow violence and He will not allow oppression to continue. And it really doesn't matter if that's coming from an individual or if it's coming from a nation like Assyria or Rome or America for that matter. God is active. God is involved. And He sees what's happening within His creation. And so Nahum ends with this message. Very graphic, a little bit depressing when we don't have all of the context. But for the Jew, encouragement. My oppressor, the person trying to kill me, God is going to defeat them. But as readers today, maybe it leaves us wondering, what am I supposed to do with that? I don't make the decisions for my nation. I'm not the one that, that has any say whether they go do some of the things that Assyria was busy doing. And a matter of fact, my nation, America, doesn't seem to be as bad as what Assyria was. So what does this really have to do with me? Or maybe more to the, to the point uh, or, or to the mind of, of, uh, of many at this time of year, what does this have to do with Christ? We're so close to a time of year when so many people are thinking about Him. What does this have to do with Christ? How does this relate to Christ? You remember what I told you at the beginning of this, this lesson? Nahum recycles a lot of language from Isaiah. I want us to go back to chapter 1 for a moment. And I want us to focus on verse 15. Behold on the mountains... The feet of him who pronounces or who brings good, good news, who announces peace. This phrase comes from two places in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 and 11, and Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. These passages essentially say two things. The first one God is here, God is the shepherd. Isaiah brings that message to the people at a time when they needed to be reminded God has not left. He's, he's not just abandoned you and went to do something else. He's still here. He still sees. And He is the shepherd of His people. That's just as applicable in Nahum's time. When they look around and think, what's God doing when Assyria is doing all this stuff to us? He says, on the mountains, the feet of Him who brings good news. He's still here. And then Isaiah 52, verse 7, Isaiah reminds them God reigns. He is in control. He is still the King. Yes, wickedness, violence, oppression of the weak and the needy, 
That's all that they could see. And if I'm honest, it permeates our society. I cannot turn on the news without seeing over and over again examples of that. Get out of the car to come in this morning and I have a notification that there's been a shooting in Chicago where they were, they were memorializing a ban on guns, <laughs> on shooting violence. They were remembering the life of a person who because of their illegal use of a firearm had caused them to die and they were there to say, we, we're tired of this and a shooting broke out. That's the society we live in. It's the society that they lived in. Violence, oppression permeates our society. And if we're honest with ourselves, we look at that and we say that's overwhelming, but then we also start to say, you know what's overwhelming? My own failures. It's not just our society, it's me. I fail. I fail as a father. I fail as a husband. I fail as a brother. I fail as a servant of Christ. We look at our own lives and, and when we begin to be overwhelmed, when we begin to look at the world and we begin to look at ourselves and we begin to see what's going on and what hope is there for me. The message of Nahum is remember who God is. He is the shepherd. He is here. And He reigns. The message is remember that He is the good avenger. In, verses one, in chapter 1, verse 2, and verse 6, that vengeance of God is just so magnificently displayed. He is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on His adversaries, reserves wrath for His enemies. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by Him. That is a passage that reminds me that no matter how wicked this world gets, and no matter what somebody else does to me, my God, my shepherd, my King is not just somewhere and blind to it. He sees and He is able to avenge and He is able to bring His wrath down upon it. But then when I start to think about my own failures, I have to view them in the same light. That He sees and He is vengeful and the guilty will not go unpunished. And that's when verses like 3 and 7 stand out. He is slow to anger and great in power. And yes, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, but verse 7, He is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who take refuge in Him. As we dwell upon the fact of who God is and the fact that He is watchful for sin, whether it be directed against me or whether it be mine directed towards Him. And Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned. I don't know about you. I, didn't, I don't need Romans 3.23 to remind me of that. My life reminds me of that often. When we think about these verses describing God, I hope we also think, what am I to do? What am I to do before this patient, 
and loving and compassionate and forgiving God who is also wrathful and jealous and will punish the guilty of what which I am. What am I to do? Well, I think of Romans 6.23, which Paul's response to people in that same situation was turn to Christ. He's the answer to stand before this God. In Colossians 1 and verse 13, Paul writes to the Colossians and says, you can be transferred into the kingdom of Christ. Christ can be your king. And Christ Himself in John 10 said, I am the good shepherd. King, shepherd. Those who enter through Christ can be saved. It sounds like the words of Isaiah and the words of Nahum are still a pretty relevant message to the world today. And with that, can we assist you? Can we help you come to the reigning shepherd today? Peter instructed those who would do so to repent, to turn away from their sins, to turn away from wickedness. The same message given to Nineveh, to turn away. And then he says to be baptized, to be immersed, to be buried in waters to receive forgiveness of your sins. If you have not done that today, we would love to assist you in doing that in obeying Christ and submitting to Him. I would ask, do you believe? Do you believe in the God that we've talked about this morning? Do you believe that He is mighty in power and that He is able to save through the blood of Jesus Christ? And if you believe in that, are you willing to follow Him? If so, it is our desire to help you do that. If only you would let us know we could begin that today. If there's anything we could do, won't you please come forward right now as we stand and sing the song of invitation.